Michael Levitson, and this is episode 10 of The Tell. So ever since I was a kid, I've always wanted to know things about other people. I was pretty obsessed with any mystery. I wanted to know what was going on in the neighbors' houses. Uh, I wanted to know what the girls at school wrote in their diaries, <laughs> in their secret diaries with locks on them. I wanted to know what the teacher did when they went home. Um, it always frustrated me that I couldn't know what went on, you know, in all of these, it, it made everything into like a secret room that I wasn't allowed to see into. And uh, I found it frustrating, often infuriating. And every once in a while, you would get a chance to see some secret thing. When I got older, as a teenager, I went to uh, this place I call family therapy camp, where people would do therapy in front of an audience. Uh, and I got to witness stuff about the secret lives of the people at family therapy camp. And it was addictive. You got to see what couples were really like. You got to see what they were like when they fought. And now I get that experience. Sometimes I hear fighting through the walls. I love when people fight on the street. You get to see what a relationship is really like. Um, so I love stories about people who find out what's going on, you know, with people behind the scenes. So uh, this episode, we have a story from Rodrigo Amarante uh, and a story from Danielle Aykroyd and a live performance from Kelsey Liu. And uh, so you get to find out in these stories what the neighbors are up to. This is episode 10 of The Tell. So I had this relationship with this girl. It was a long relationship. She... She looked like an angel, really. She had, like, at least for Brazilian standards and according to, like, posters and things like that. She had big blue eyes and blonde hair. She was angelical. She was not an angel, though. But, but she, I think, I'm, I'm saying that because I think that that's what led her to, to be really um, tuned into signs of the beyond and things like that. So that said, my I was with her, and um, our relationship had um, a few pivotal moments involving the most extreme events I've ever been in. First time we went out, I'm not going to tell you those stories, just going to go through real quick. First time we went out, we saw a dead body. The, um, the first time we moved into an apartment, a man was killed right in front of us. And when we broke up, we were uh, held hostages at gunpoint together. So that's how it ended. <laughs> but in the middle, we <laughs> it, we um, found an apartment together, and then we moved in. And it was this perfect little apartment, like in Rio. It was like in a in a sh shady place in a dead end street with like a courtyard, not a courtyard. What do you call that? Like a square, like not not a big park, but a little square. In this den, that end, where the street goes around, like the, all the kids and teenagers would hang there all day, and it was very tall trees, it was like twenties building. All the arches were round. It was cozy and nice, so we moved in there, and um, it was a small building. There were six apartments, two per floor. So we're on the second floor. So the front door had another front door in front. You know, the kitchen door had another door in front of it too. And so we're trying to find out who was around, meeting the neighbors, and the neighbors were these two sisters that lived with their mother. Sisters were around 50s, in their 50s like that, and the mother was much older, naturally. 
<laughs> but I met the sisters first. They were called Zuzu and Zeze. They were very strange looking. <laughs> Zuzu was small and round, had like wavy dark hair, was always looking down. And Zeze was taller and she was square. She was like, not round, but she, she was flat, but square. She was very l large, but flat. It was a strange type of, and she had like um, long hair, like dark hair and the bangs that went down, like as, as far down as you can get it. <laughs> and dark eyes like that. They were pretty fucking creepy. <laughs> and so we met them. I remember Zezé tried to smile. It didn't really work out, but I, I got the, the intention. Zuzu did not try. And so we meet them. And then we're, you know, we're staying at the apartment. And then once in a while, according to the wind change, I would smell this kind of, I think the word in English is acrid. This very pungent, like acid smell that would come. I was like, what the fuck is that smell? Like, I don't know, piss and something else. But it would go away. And, and I, I inquired with the building, like, what is that? Like with the landlord. And I eventually discovered what it was and then explained other things, which the amount of cats around. So my neighbor uh, across from me had about, it had a, a number that was hard to estimate of cats living in there, <laughs> a lot of them. And then I realized, I was like, oh, like, cause there would be cats around. I thought it was cool, cute, and I like cats. But they were in and out and then all the time. And there were many. And then I was like, fuck, this is so strange. And they, then they looked even creepier to me, you know? Yeah, I was like, Zuzu didn't have a neck. She'd be like, hello. And she had this voice. And I remember, I never forget one day where she would cross paths and she said, my, my uh, name is really long. And she said all the names, which means that she was going through my mail. It was like, hello, Rodrigo Amarante de Castro Neves. <laughs> so, I mean, there's much more to it. But so, so we're in this situation. And then one day, the, so I didn't meet the mother. I, I didn't see the mother. I was like, where's the mother? We don't see her. Maybe she's really old in there. Felt sorry, of course. But so one day the, the, the doorbell rings and it's the mother. And her name was Carmen. And she was a small lady, um, mignon, like small body, like, but put together, like perfect hair, like put together the pearl earrings, like the dress that was kind of cut. And, and she was serious, but very like put together and with her was a I assume a nurse someone dressed in white this tall black woman very serious too with short hair and this white outfit and she was tall and Carmen was small and she's like hi I'm sorry to to disturb but I'm going through a situation and I need your help I said well, sure anything what's going on she's like well you know uh, my daughter's I, I developed a disease because of the cats and my daughter's it took control and I can't, I, couldn't, I can't get them to get rid of the cats. And so I, I was pretty much thrown out of my own house and they won't let me in. So I need you to help me and tell me when Zuzu is out. I'm 15 minutes away, you call me, I'll come and I'll get my precious things while she's out. <laughs> Zezé works. Her job was she was a doorman, a doorwoman at a gym. <laughs> and she worked from nine to five. 
so Zuzu was there. And so, sure enough, in a couple of we kept a watch. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was really moved by the story. She was also very small. And we kept the watch, and we, we, Zuzu laughed. We called her. She, sure enough, showed up, and it was very dynamic. I was like, I'll keep the watch. And then my girlfriend went, and she's like, I'm going in. I was like, what the fuck are you going in for? You know, it's like a, a den of disease, and like, no, I want to see it. And she went in, and she bounced back because of the smell. She really, like, she... <laughs> and, but she saw, it was like newspaper all over the floor, and cat shit, and piss, and cats, like popping out of drawers and cabinets. It was like a popcorn of cats everywhere. It was this crazy thing. And then she, Carmen walks in, she grabs her things and she she runs out it's very fast and we're nervous because, you know, we don't know. So, so Carmen goes away and takes her things. And then um, after that, we get, I remember, so, so I started paying attention more and becoming aware of them. Right, and so in Brazil, it's coming that the kitchen door, which is usually facing the other kitchen, because it's colonial kind of everything, including architecture. So the kitchen is removed from the house; it's where other people stay at, you know. And so, for that reason, the kitchen usually will have the door closed, and for that, they have a breathing on top of the door. It's coming, and, you know. There's the door, and there's a breathing there, which allowed me to hear everything that was happening in there. And so, I actually talked to Michael about the, the, I found the recordings of them because I started recording them because they, Zuzu was the, the dominant and Zezé was the submissive. And so they would argue, but, but Zezé would be submissive, but still fight. And they, you'd be like, the discussions were insane. Like, you piece of shit. What are you good for? You ate my yogurt. And she's like, no, Zezé, no, I didn't do it. No, we fought. And it would be like, it's really scary and loud. Like, so I managed to cover it with a piece of wood. <laughs> but I was very aware of that. And it became creepier and creepier. I remember one day it was raining really hard. It does, it rains really hard in Brazil. And it's raining, torrential rain. And Zuzu is outside in the rain. Zezé, oh, Zuzu, open up. And then some neighbors like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Come on, we, do you mind calling her? It's like, fuck you, no. Zuzu open up. And like this kind of abuse, it was, it was intense. And so, so one day, and I remember it was raining again, the doorbell rings again. I open up, it's the nurse by herself. And she's, she was still dressed in white. And she was still very tall and beautiful. But she was very serious. And she's like, uh, I'm sorry to bother. I came here because something really sad happened. Um, so this was a few days after Mother's Day. And she was. She told me I was at the hospital with Carmen, like I am every day. It was Mother's Day. So I left that day to see my daughters. And, and um, I came back the next day and she was dead. And it turns out that Zuzu and Zezé went to visit them that day. And so I came here because I need to tell you that these people are crazy. Like, I don't know. I can't tell you that something happened, but this is, this is, this is what happened. I went out. They came in. I came back. She was dead. So have a good day. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck, we got to. So I'm with my girlfriend at this point. I was like, we got to get out of here, right? So there was no Airbnb or, or we couldn't go to a hotel. 
check into a hotel. So we're looking for a place to go. Um, and then the time passed and then this strange movement started happening because, you know, in, in Rio, there's a lot of people in the streets and like people that, you know, homeless people that kind of park cars and are like street, street thugs and kind of wise guys and all these types in the street. And so you kind of recognize them because they kind of stay in the same area. So I start seeing these guys in and out of the building and going in and coming out. And I remember one day I saw one. He was walking out with a bag, like a bag full of like silverware, like fancy, like silver things. It was like a cartoon thief, like. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? So one day I wake up with the sound, with this really loud like there was a PA system in my house and it's this, um, it sounds like a speech, but in tongues, really loud. And I'm, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? So I, I go in the living room and I can't really tell where it's coming. It's coming from the kitchen and I go in the kitchen, it was very small. And I'm like, what? So I open the door to the outside and outside there is a speaker system, a whole stereo in between my door and my neighbor's door and the wires going through under their door and there's a cassette tape with this fucking thing it's it was creep it was like imagine like a speech in tongues or something and I'm, i was i didn't know what to do so i i kicked the thing i i yanked the, the cable and i kicked the thing and i kicked the door open and i threw it all in there and i closed it and i went back to my apartment and i'm like what am i gonna do like I was, you know, it was disturbing. And I was like, okay, we really got to get out of here. This is getting crazy. So I go on tour. I'm a musician. So, and then I get a call from my girlfriend saying, crying and super stressed, saying that she heard a conversation between her and the street thugs in the kitchen where she was offering... I can't remember exactly what appliance it was. Maybe it was a microwave. <laughs> but offering something in return to something else, and then she was saying my full name just like that, my girlfriend's full name just like that, to the top. And you're like, yeah. And, and she said that they were like, it's like the, you know, shorts, flip-flops, sunglasses, gold chain. Like, and they're in and out. And my girlfriend's like, I'm... I was like, get out of there. I'm going to be home in two days. Like, get out of there. Go somewhere else and we'll figure it out. So two days pass. I go back home. And so I, I come back home. And, and at this point, we're getting desperate, like looking for alternatives to how to get up. But, it, you know, it's hard. Like you just moved in and, you know, I have to look on ads and it's like, fuck, is this one? So it lingered. <laughs> So I'm thinking, at this point, I'm like, okay, I'm going to call the police. I'm going to go to the, get a lawyer, get, go to the police and, and, you know, I don't know, tell this, per I have a neighbor that's out of control. And so one day I get a letter from the mail, from the police. I open it up and it says, you have uh, 48 hours to show up at the police headquarters in your neighborhood. I'm like, what the fuck? Okay. So I go there and they tell me, well, have a seat. Um, you're the main suspect of a beating. And there is a actually a, a, a report on wounds on record. You're still a suspect, but you're the main suspect. There's a witness and everything. I'm like, who is it? 
then he said the name, which I didn't recognize, but I fucking knew it was Zuzu. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, dude, this is insane. Like, even the police is now, she's with the police, like, <laughs> and so I go, I go, I get a lawyer. I had, there's, a, there's a court, there's a court date. I go to the court. There's a judge with a fucking cloak and everything. And I go there with the lawyer and even ask the friend to come along so it looked like I had two lawyers. So I go, I go there. He dressed really nice. I go there and there's Zuzu, dude. And she's sitting there with her lawyer. <laughs> and the lawyer it was like a small room poor like fluorescent lights and the judge is still high up it's kind of a ridiculous high up just very little but the judge is there there's a table my lawyer's there lawyer. and so she's with her lawyer her lawyer was a round guy that was kind of nicely he had a bow tie but he was like he had a, a, a relax kind of a smile on his face but the rest was not calm his hands, I remember that, his hands were on the table, like, and his hands were small, kind of clammy and round, but his hands were resting on the, on the table as if he was holding poker chips. <laughs> it was so bizarre. And, and he's there, like, with, with a smile, but this body language, and she's there, like, mm. <laughs> So they start, give him the word, and so he says, well, we're here to accuse blah, blah, blah because of, of invading property, pr private property, and, and causing this, and like telling this, this thing, and, 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 and you can see that she's getting angry. And uh, so they give the, my lawyer the word, and he says, well, this is completely crazy. Um, my client was somewhere else when she's claiming that he did that, and you know, whatever, he made an argument that she's insane. <laughs> and that she's, you know, not reliable and then she started talking that's how that's not true you invaded you re and then when she started talking the lawyer goes shut the fuck up shut the fuck up <laughs> and 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 she shuts up and, it was, and she, she i was like wow she's the submissive there <laughs> and the guy's like shut the fuck up and then he turns he puts on the face they had before i'm so sorry blah, blah, blah. and and i'm like and i'm like Going to my lawyer like, yeah. And he's like, well, see, and then, then the discussion started like, and then he, my lawyer, smartly realized that that was, that's our way out. So he started, you know, vamping the thing up like, you see that, that behavior, la, la. and she, ah, and he's, shut the fuck up, I told you to fucking don't talk, ah. and it was like this whole thing until the, until finally the, the, the judge, he started to hit that, the gavel. <laughs> And, and said, you know what, fuck, fuck this, you know, in his language. He said, the case is dismissed or whatever, and then I was free to go home, and soon enough, uh, found an apartment, which is, which is, then there's another story about that, but I'm not going to tell you. Um, but with the, 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 the happy ending, I suppose, is that I moved out, but I kind of made friends with the neighbors, and then I met one of these neighbors not long after, and he said that Zuzu was taken away in the middle of that little square in a fucking straitjacket by like the woo, like they grabbed her, tied her up, and she's like, ah! and all the kids in the square are like, yeah, and like she's taken with the fucking straitjacket.
you know, and so that's the last I heard from Zuzu. I ended up moving to another apartment, which is where me and my girlfriend got uh, kidnapped and uh, held hostages. And that's how the relationship ended. They, just so you know, it doesn't leave it open. They, they asked, they robbed everything, the car, the wallets, everything it was terrible. But they asked us to, for our rings, which it, it's sad, but we never got back. Like once they took our rings, we realized that was over. And that's the end of that relationship. I mean, if she wanted signs, she really fucking got it. in college, I moved off campus to this incredible house. I moved there with my friend Rachel and we lived in the attic. And uh, the way that this house was laid out is that it faced this beautiful, the front of the house faced this beautiful enchanted tree-lined street. It was called Athens Street. And the back of the house faced this complex of um, large dormitory buildings that was held at bay by this very strange little courtyard that should have been our backyard, but it wasn't quite our backyard because in it was this weird bifurcated, double-decker apartment building. Um, and our house was two stories in an attic, and this house was two stories, except the way it worked was that if you were on the second floor of our house, you'd basically be hovering between the two levels of the house and behind. And if you were in the attic, you'd be flush with the second floor. And lengthwise, it was much, it was a longer building, and it was split down the center with these two close-set doors under a um, small, like, cupola, um, sharing a tiny set of stairs, and then this balcony that connected the two apartments at the top. Um, and so one day, I'm sitting in our little common room at the back of the house, and I'm sitting at the window and with my friends in the room, and we're, they're watching television and chatting, and I get this feeling. It hits me right out of the blue, this feeling. It's really hard to describe, um, because it's not really a feeling, it's a knowledge. Um, just as I could say to you right now, like, these are my hands, I said to them, I turned to the room, and I said, hey, guys, the, the guy in the house behind us is dead. And they were they like turned to me, and they're like, what? And I said, yeah, no, the, the guy in the house behind us is dead. And my friend Kara, who is the most pragmatic person I know and so brilliant and so hilarious, she looks at me, and she's like, okay, don't be morbid, Danielle. And um, I am known for being morbid, <laughs> so I think to myself, like, okay, I, I, like, doubt my knowledge in the face of this morbidity. Like, maybe I am totally making up this fact. Maybe I am making up this beyond visceral, profound knowledge that that guy is dead, and he's not just dead, he's very dead, and he's been there for a really long time. Um, but I guess it's relevant to say that I come from a family of psychically charged people. Um, my grandfather, my great-grandfather was a full trans medium, and uh, I've grown up in and around haunted houses, but I'd never really like cultivated anything. Like I have a gift, but I'd never cultivated it. I've never done anything with it. I'm super distracted and, and <laughs> pretty materialistic. So I, I, I'm not up in that world, but I just knew it. I knew with everything that I was that this guy was dead. And so I'm 
looking out, they turn back to the, to the television, and I'm fixated, I'm looking out this window, and I'm fixated on this house, and I begin to look for signs of my sanity. Like, I'm not crazy. And so I see, I, I, I look behind me, and the mail is piling up on his threshold, and the welcome mat is covered in leaves and, and with newspapers, and up on the balcony there's far more brush than there really should be for this time of year. And I'm sure of it. And so I turn to them and I say, no guys, seriously, that guy's dead and he's been in there for weeks. And uh, at this point, nobody really says anything because A, it's disturbing and B, there's no way to verify it. And so they turn back into the room and there's this giant, hilariously giant TV and it's showing Law and Order SVU. And they're sitting there and they're watching it and I'm again fixated out the window watching this house. And it's really not very long before at the mouth of the courtyard, down this tiny little path, comes this middle-aged man and these two middle-aged women. And they're all very gray and they look very worried and they're sort of huddled at the mouth of the courtyard. And the guy is, he's like, you know, he's balding, he's shaved bald and he's got round glasses and he's wearing Levi's and a t-shirt and he's like, sort of, he's lean and sort of hawkish, but in a what I think of as like a well-meaning way. And then there are these two women there, and they're more nondescript for me. Um, and I think because I didn't really, uh, they were just swept up into everything so quickly and I didn't really see them for what they were as anything beyond like part of this incredible scene that was unfolding. Um, and so the guy, the, the man, he crosses the courtyard and he goes up and he walks up the steps and first he kicks away the newspapers, and then he rings the doorbell. Nothing, as I know. And then he knocks on the door, and there's nothing. And then he bangs on the door. And uh, then he turns around and, and goes back to the women. And at this point, I'm like, oh my god, okay, I'm right. Guys, everybody, the family's here. I'm just like, they're right here, they're coming to find him. And they're like, what, what are you talking about? And so then, like... I, they all come and gather around me behind the window and we're, we're all watching this scene and the, the guy turns to these women and he says, when was the last time that you, that you heard from him? And, and I think I hear them say, well, we, we spoke a couple of weeks ago and it was on a Saturday. And um, then he makes a call, the, the guy makes a call and I, um, I didn't hear it because like, my friends are, are milling around and everybody's freaking out and saying, like, what's going on? Um, and then suddenly another man appears and he's kind of smaller, and he's got a newsboy's cap on, and he's not quite, not quite gray, bearded, messenger bag, and he's walking a bike, and he walks the bike in and leans it against my fence. Um, and then he walks over to the people, and he pulls out this ring of keys, and so it's clear that it's the landlord. And they, he and the man approach the steps. They go to the door. Um, they knock on the door, and again, there's no answer. And then they take the first key, and they put the first key in, and they turn it, and it turns, but the door won't open because it's bolted at the top. And so they try another key and it doesn't even turn. And the landlord just kind of like shrugs his shoulders and he gestures at the door as if like these are, there's so many locks in there, there's no way that we're ever going to get in. Um, and at this point, I can't hear, but I sort of feel the, the brother, as I call him now, the brother say, well, what about upstairs? And the landlord kind of thinks about it and the men confer and the other women are cowering in quiet over in the corner. And um, so they knock on the door to apartment two, which is to the right. And the door opens and it's this absolutely beautiful woman and she's glowing and she's tall and she's delicate. And they begin to 
to speak to her, and her face sort of becomes tense, and it falls, and, and she steps to the side, and the brother goes up behind her, up the steps, and disappears into her house as the landlord and the neighbor talk nervously. And then upstairs, the scene shifts, and it moves up. Remember, I'm in the second story window watching in between the two levels. Um, and so the scene moves up, and this window, it squeaks open, and first out comes a leg, and then out comes a torso and an arm and a head, and then the brother is hanging and hovering up in this, this strange balcony above me. And as he's moving, he moves to the left toward the, the left tenant's apartment, and the leaves start to collect around his ankles and knees, and there's all of these pots and, and, and broken plants and broken tools and whatever. And from this vantage point on the second floor, I watch as he puts his hands on the dirty glass of the window, and he pushes it up, and then he bends down to meet the room, and he kind of puts his head inside, and then he's absolutely thrown back against the railing. He pulls out a red handkerchief from his back pocket, and he holds it to his mouth, and he leans back down, and he looks back inside, and he's blown back again, and he looks down first to the landlord and to the nervous neighbor, and they're waiting with their necks craned up. And then he looks sort of apologetically to the women in the corner, and he says, yeah. And he sort of chokes, and he says, he's in there. And this whole thing after this, even though it lasted for hours and hours, it just went very quickly after that. Um, my friends started calling their friends, and their friends started calling their friends, and then suddenly there were like 15 people in the room, like the whole Harvard lacrosse team. They were all there like watching this unfold. Um, and so, I guess, to continue, the brother, he goes in first through the window, and he goes in, and then suddenly he's like out moments later, he's unbolted the doors, he'd flown down the stairs, and he's pushed open the door. And he's gagging, and he's running. He's just be, trying to be as cool as possible in this terrible situation. And then next comes in this big, brolic Boston cop, and he's like, you can tell he's kind of a jerk, and he's like being very gruff with the family members. And uh, he enters the house, and he walks in, and he's puffed up, and he's like kind of smiling. And then I can't tell you, it's like 30 seconds later, this guy is out the house, he's at the threshold and he's green, his complexion is just wasted, and he runs out and he leans against the adjacent wall and he begins to retch and he vomits. And he puts his hand to his mouth and he calls on his radio for backup. And um, then the firemen come and it's the same thing. They come in and they're, they're you know, like, they deal with this all the time. They're standing straight, they have stiff spines, these heavy helmets. And they go in, and they come out, and they're totally crumpled. And they have no idea what to do. And so we're watching all of this. And again, it's not quite the ideal viewing situation, because we're just below, and because of the light and the gloaming, the lights aren't on in the room, and it's, it's dark, and so we can really just see these, these shadows. Um, and, like, people milling around in the courtyard and going up and down these stairs, and then finally the emergency medical services come. And the, they're in masks. And uh, they go into the house, and now is when we can begin to see sort of what's going on in there. 
even though it's still mostly shadow. And so we see these men enter this room, and there's this kind of vague outline of a body on a bed, and we're not sure what happened or how or what led us all here, but basically um, we can see that there's this body there and it's been there for a long time. And as I know um, from my intuition and from the Law and Order SVU that's on in the corner still, um, the body's in full rigor mortis. And you can tell from the people inside that are moving around the medical examiners and uh, the EMTs that that's like the, what they have to deal with now because this house is very narrow and the, um, the doors are very narrow. So they, um, they takes three men to maneuver the body to a place where they can start to put it into this bag. And we've just seen the gurney come out from uh, farther street. The ambulance is far away. And we, we see them bring the gurney in and up the stairs. And then we see them bring the orange body bag in up under their arms. And then we watch as three men maneuver this like I mean, it, it was just a, a dance. I mean, it was a dance of shadows because we could barely see it, but we watch as these three men sort of maneuver this vaguely human shape into this body bag, and they get the legs in, and they get the torso in, and then they come to these arms, and that's the sticking point. And so we see these three men. One takes the torso, and the other take these, like, shapes that are presumably arms, and they snap them at the shoulders, and they break them down, and they stuff the meat into the orange bag. And then they zip up the bag, and that's kind of it for them. So they just kind of like take it out, and it's being their casual, and they like tilt it out the door and tilt it out, and then they spirit it away right by the family. And I'd forgotten about the family because there was all of this stuff going on there. Um, and they were just left in their shock to sort of like melt away into the courtyard to just disappear. And I, I say disappear because we actually didn't see them leave. Um, after the body left, it was just a kind of disintegration of the scene and like these cops who didn't want to be there and nobody wanted to be there, nobody wanted to go inside. And it was just left for the landlord, who was, I believe, the last person there to just like, sit with his singular burden and shift his weight from foot to foot and lock up all these locks. Um, but I didn't see that. I never saw that happen because toward the end of the night, I left the house um, with my friend and we went out and, and tried to decompress and then we came back at nightfall and we went upstairs to our attic room. And remember the whole time we'd been watching from this second floor which was hovering in between the, the ground and the scene of the death. So we had never really been able to see right into the window. And we could have gone up there at any point during the night, but I, I, I think it may have been out of some unconscious respect that we didn't do that. Um, and we went, so we went up into the attic, and finally, after all of this, we could see into the room, right in because they'd left the lights on. And it was this one naked fluorescent bulb hanging from a wire over this bed in the center of this small room where there was this terrible impression of this body that had lain there for weeks. 
and the man had drunk himself to death. And around this bed collected were just tens and tens and tens of glasses and tumblers and containers and jugs. And they were all gathered and glinting in this room around on the floor and on all of the surfaces. And it reminded me of this honeycomb in which all of the hollows were pooling the, the last drops of the honey-colored southern comfort and the boxed red wine that had killed him. And in these puddles, the tiny little specks of what I presumed to be the dead bodies of flies. But that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was the walls. Because a glow with that one naked bulb they were piss yellow and peeling, and on them they had all of this spackling as if it were a pattern of some awful wallpaper. But it wasn't wallpaper. It was thousands of flies and roaches and moths. Thousands and thousands of them hovering on these walls. And for weeks, nobody went back to apartment one. And we stayed in that attic. We lived up there. And they left that light on. So for weeks and weeks, I watched from my bed as the flies circulated and the liquids evaporated and the moths hovered around the bulb until one day it just flickered and it went out. Oh. Uh -huh.
of that was a live performance by Kelsey Liu of her song Time. And uh, the first story of the episode was Rodrigo Amarante's Saga of Zuzu and Zeze. Um, and that was recorded actually at the Tell Secret Backyard installment in L.A. Um, and then the second story was Danielle Aykroyd. So uh, the next installment of the Tell in New York at the Jane Hotel Ballroom is Monday, August 28th. And you can find out all you need to know about going to see the Tell in person at thetellstories.com. Uh, I want to thank Gabriel Galvin for co-producing the podcast and to uh, Natalia Schween for co-producing the tell. Uh, so playing beneath me right now is John Coward's solo organ version of the tell theme song written by a fool. This round, uh, I'm going to sing a version of it by myself, a live solo version from our performance in L.A. This was episode 10 of the tell. Baby. I like your story A story you won't tell But yeah, I witnessed How it unspooled It's brilliant Cause it's written By a fool Oh yeah you're quite a character The girl who broke the rules Got her comeuppance Lost her cool It's brilliant Cause it's written by a fool You're writing by accident you're crying for lack of sense At the ending, when the plot is spent You'll be the only one who won't understand just what it meant Oh yeah, a tearjerker From certain points of view teaches a lesson they should read it in school it's brilliant cause it's written by a fool I'm reading between the lines I'm peeking between the blinds I'm seeking a fitting rhyme by what a tragedy it'd be if you were mine I don't care about your grammar I like your twists and turns are you a genius or a dunce on a stool it's brilliant Cause it's written by a fool It's brilliant Cause it's written by a fool It's brilliant Cause it's written by a fool